we're so used to seeing things that, in my opinion, aren't quite right in our treatment of animals. And the less we eat, the less violence is being done and the less destruction to the environment. Everyone eats and everyone has to make a moral decision every time that we sit down to the table. Welcome to the Animal Voices Radio Show, Western Canada's only radio program focusing on animal advocacy and compassionate living. This is CFRO 100.5 FM, Co-op Radio, Vancouver, Canada. Today is Friday, September the 1st, and for the next hour, I'm your host, Jen Dobell, and I'm joined in studio today by my vegan, animal-loving co-hosts, Jillian Walters hey. and Allison Cole. Today's intro features... Inter- sorry, today's show features interviews with two Vancouverites who are changing the world for an- with their animal advocacy. First, we will speak with plant-based nutritionist Nikki Hurst about the most commonly asked questions by non-vegans about a plant-based diet. Following this, we will speak with filmmaker Gary Charbonneau, creator of the 2016 documentary Vancouver Aquarium Uncovered, about the upcoming lawsuits involving himself, Vancouver Aquarium, and the Park Board as well as the Vancouver Aquarium's connection to the controversial and cruel dolphin trade industry. Stay tuned for those interviews in the next hour. Today marks the beginning of the annual five-month-long dolphin drive hunt in Taiji, Japan. If anyone out there has seen the documentary The Cove, you will know what I'm talking about. The Taiji dolphin hunt is a drive hunt of dolphins and other cetaceans that takes place in Taiji, Wakayama, and Japan every year from September to March, including pilot whaling, which lasts a month longer. The hunts are argued to be part of Japanese culture, however, have only started since 1969. Annually, an approximation of 22,000 small cetaceans are killed during, using the methodology of drive hunting, taking place in the waters of Japan. The term dolphin drive hunting, also known as the drive fishery, refers to the act of driving or herding cetaceans specifically into coves conducted for the following reasons providing income for local residents, they are seen as pests by local fishermen, and are competition in the livelihood of fisheries, a source of meat for human consumption, and locally and internationally provide live cetaceans in the business of marine parks for human entertainment purposes. There's a quota set by the government of Japan allowing over 2,000 cetaceans to be slaughtered or captured, and this Japanese hunt is one of the biggest slaughters of the dolphins and whales around the world. The coves literally turn red with blood. The annual dolphin hunt provides income for local residents and has received international criticism for both the cruelty of the dolphin killing and the high mercury levels of the dolphin meat and uh, a trained dolphin that is obtained from the dolphin hunt can be sold for hundred and fifty thousand US dollars to marine parks and Jillian you have another personal story on where else these dolphins end up yes they also end up at swim encounters um, I have always loved dolphins and my dream was to swim with dolphins one day and you know after years of boycotting zoos and aquariums I still uh, succumb to the I guess the propaganda of the allure yeah the the dolphins the swim Mm -hmm. with the dolphins and it's a rescue center and we provide you know the best care and it's an open lagoon and and you know my thoughts I was just you know I was swayed so I did uh a dolphin encounter program and as I was lining up with the hundreds of people that were packed closely it, it just it was it just hit me like a brick like I just felt overwhelmed like oh my god this is I've just been played <laughs> and
and you could really, I mean, you could understand right away that these dolphins were there for one purpose, to make to make money. I have to say I had a similar experience as well. When was, how long ago was your experience? Seven years ago. Yeah, you know, mine was nine years ago, and I, I identified as a vegan then, actually, mm-hmm. but yet I was still, it doesn't mean I'm perfect, it doesn't mean I actually know all the issues, because my whole life has been a continual journey of education, right? And I was ignorant, and um, if, you, if you've noticed, I'm wearing my dolphin jewelry today in, in honor of Japan Dolphins Day. I have a lot. I'm seeing my really long earrings mm-hmm. here, um, because I really honor dolphins. I, I think they're such special creatures, and um, we've done shows before about dolphins, and I've done... Um, There was this book that I read by Leah Lemieux. I don't know if either of you know her. And she wrote a book about her dolphin encounters in... in uh, where is it Puerto Rico or no Cuba Cuba and that book just really really touched me so much that actually when she came here to visit from Toronto I said I I need to meet you and I have to talk to you about the dolphins and it was so special to me that she had like these real like actual encounters where she she had relationships with these dolphins but unfortunately they were kept in a captive environment I did the same thing in 2008 I really wanted to swim with dolphins my Mm -hmm. sister did too and I'm sad to say too that my dad actually paid for that plus all of our relatives kids and we went in and we we took part in that Mm -hmm. and it was only and I guess not that long later a year or two later where I realized this is actually a really shameful thing that I did and I feel bad and I will never participate in such a thing again and people need to watch the film The Cove it won the Academy Award for Best Documentary in 2000 10 watch that and you'll become educated about mm-hmm. issues to do with dolphins it might seem like a it might be a special experience for you and your kids but it's not it's not worth from where they're coming from like Jen said the cove is actually red with blood I remember first seeing those pictures in a National Geographic magazine once a very long time ago when I was a child it's been going on I guess for many many years and I remember thinking like not even realizing what that was and putting the connection together with that's actually the dolphin you know quote-unquote fun experiences that you can have when you're when you're on vacation, especially in Mexico, there's so many of these dolphin encounter facilities in Mexico it's right growing now. In popularity. We did ours in the Dominican Republic, and I don't know where you did yours, Jillian, but um, yeah, Jamaica. It's, Jamaica, right, right, Jamaica. Yeah, please boycott these places, and you'll learn more why about why to do that in in um, in the show. And, and I just want to ha- mention, if sorry. You, sorry, if you have gone, um, talk about it. You know, there yeah, is this, there's like shame around, yeah, there's shame around having participated in it, but it's important to talk about it. Yeah. yeah and, and, you know, it's always a learning experience. Mm-hmm. And I just want to mention from my own experience, I haven't done a Swim with the Dolphins tour, but I do online dating and there are so many pictures of people posing with drug tigers, posing with uh, dolphins they've been swimming with, fish. riding elephants, of course, holding fish. Because they're so um, proud. So I just want people to know that whenever you have the opportunity to be close to an animal, ask yourself how that happened. And if the facility that's doing this tells you they were rescued, that's really generally not true because mm-hmm. a true sanctuary does not allow the public to interact exactly. with animals. It's exploitation. Well, thanks for that. And I look forward to, to learning more throughout this show. 
Did you know that Vancouver Co-op Radio CFRO 100.5 FM has over 90 different shows produced by over 350 community members? This wide range of programming produced by our diverse group of programmers ensures that we have a show you'll love. We have shows on feminism, spirituality, disability rights, politics, unions, and parenting. We play jazz, indie rock, reggae, blues, and folk. We broadcast in a dozen different languages and have more First Nations programs than any other radio station in Vancouver. Find your show on Vancouver Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM. All different, all the time. And now for the news. Sea Shepherd, the environmental group famous for tracking, exposing, and occasionally ramming Japanese whalers, says it will no longer pursue the Japanese whaling ships. The Japanese whalers are being supported by military surveillance now to watch Sea Shepherd's movements in real time by satellite. So it's a combination of the surveillance techniques and the passage of new anti-terrorism laws specifically designed to condemn Sea Shepherd tactics that have made the decision for Sea Shepherd not to use their limited resources to go and pursue the whalers um which is interesting because i just watched uh me and my son are very fond of watching whale wars so i guess we'll have to look forward to what else they're going to do there Mm -hmm. i've actually never seen whale wars but i've seen a documentary called confessions of an eco-terrorist which uh talks about what sea shepherd does and uh, i actually really love the documentary i recommend it to a lot of people Mm -hmm. it even emphasizes the canadian seal hunt in one segment Mm. In in local news, uh, an East Van resident has created um, a text messaging network of about 20 members um, to be on the lookout for coyotes. So what happens is um, if she sees a coyote, she'll text uh, one of the members and then that'll be sent out. The text will be sent out to all the other members so they can watch out. If they have their cats outside, they can bring them in and and watch out for their little dogs. That's genius. Actually, I hate to say this, but my beautiful little black cat did get killed by a coyote a few years ago because I let her out at nighttime. And I don't let my cat out at night anymore. I feel terrible for that. And and it's really common. And this is in an area of town where there were no parks. I wouldn't think coyotes would be around this area. It's lots of busy streets, but they're everywhere. And they eat rats, so they're probably looking for rats. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and, and cats. They do definitely yeah. be cats as well. It's really sad. Yeah. And for events, um, today from 3 to 6.30, TV Outreach for Animals will be assembling at Burrard Station for their Earthlings experience. And I've been to one of these, and it's quite amazing how many people are engaged. They actually come and watch and actually talk, and there's some great conversations going on. Yeah, I'll be taking part in that, and it's fantastic. Even if you don't want to take part in the event, come and watch the transformational conversations. It's really inspiring. I'm going to come and watch. Oh, great. I'll probably cool. do more, Well, though. I'm going to make you leaflet. You're That's not what just you watching. Said. You said I have to leaflet. You have all the answers to all the common arguments against veganism. I do, I do. So it's a Friday. <laughs> Yay. That's going to be at Burrard Station. Oh, I'm looking forward to you're it. You're going to be on cool. top of the world by the end of the day. It's such a great feeling. And we're doing another one next week, too, at the Lonsdale Key in North Van yes. next Friday. Awesome. Mm. So, yeah to Friday outreach events. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that uh, leads me into another um, little event that's happening next Friday, and that's the Cake and Movie, where they're going to be showing the promises. They're going to be giving little cupcakes away for people to watch a five-minute clip from, I think it's 
Mercy for Animals. Mm-hmm. Promises. Is promises that, isn't that the Joanne MacArthur film? Right. Yeah, I just yeah, watched it. it last night. So Joanne MacArthur, we've had her on the show several times. She's a she's a wonderful photojournalist and animal advocate, and she goes in and documents terrible conditions for animals so that the world can see. And in the and I just watched it this morning at the gym. Actually, it was beautiful, narrated by Joanne. She just tells her story about going into a chicken farm facility. Yeah, it's a really good film. That's another great way to engage people. So that'll be happening next Friday, 5.30 to 9. Um, Tomorrow, um, animal advocates will gather outside the Vancouver Zoo. We haven't been there for a while. Lots of stuff going on in the news about zoos, so I think it's about time we gathered there in numbers and showed um, people what we think of the zoo. Absolutely. The animals need us to speak out for them. And that's happening at 1 o'clock at the Vancouver Zoo. Monday, September 4th, um, we are doing the downtown east side pop-up shop and giving away a day's worth of food. And that happens uh, Sunday, or Monday, September 4th from 4 to 8. I'll post the Facebook event link for that because there's actually a lot of information about what this mm-hmm. whole event is, which Jillian and I, Jillian and I um, helped with when we did it on Canada Day. So this time it's Labor Day, and this time we made 150 meals for uh, vegan meals for residents of the downtown east side last time, and they went like in a couple of hours. This time we're doubling our efforts. We're making 300 meals. I'm going to be there at uh, David's Kitchen Facility on Sunday. If anyone needs to help, we do need extra hands. So mm-hmm. I'll post the event link on our Facebook page, Animal Voices Vancouver, and you can get info there on how to help. I know David's going to need assistance on Sunday and on Monday before we go down. I presume the time will be around the same to doing the pop-up shop where we walk down to the downtown east side and o- offer food and all kinds of toiletries and stuff. So, mm-hmm. And I encourage yeah. young people to come down to yeah. um, my son's 13 and, and his little friend's 11 and they had a great time and the people are very nice and it they, was were, they were so friendly mm-hmm. their kid, those kids. <laughs> I thought that was just a great experience for them. If you have any animal friendly event that you'd like to have announced on the show, please send us an email at radioanimalvoices at gmail.com or post it on our Facebook page, Animal Voices Vancouver. So now we're going to have an interview with Nikki Hurst, Vancouver plant-based nutritionist. She's going to answer all your vegan questions. We'll discuss the common questions that non-vegans ask regarding protein, iron, calcium, B12, amino acids, and the ill effects of obtaining these from animal products. She's going to tell us about how a meat-centered diet harms the environment, aids antibiotic resistance, harms animals, and affects impoverished nations. Nikki, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jen. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. It's so great to have you on the show because I do a lot of vegan outreach and I can definitely tell you that these are the most common concerns amongst people who are considering going vegan. And there's so many myths that we need to bust. So thank you for being here with your level of knowledge to help us bust these myths. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're going to talk with the top five. So protein, calcium, vitamin B12, amino acids, and iron. Let's separate fact from fiction. We'll begin with the protein myth. So people think that they need animal products for protein, right? Oh, absolutely. And I don't think what people understand, not all people, of course, is that protein exists in most foods. And one can get plenty of protein from a whole food plant-based diet rich in whole grains and beans, legumes, nuts, seeds, and a variety of fresh uh, vegetables and fruit. Because protein deficiency, it really isn't a thing unless you're starving yourself and you're not getting enough calories, which we don't really see here all that much. We only need about 
eight to ten percent of our diet. That's it. That's all that needs to come from protein. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can get a twenty-one grams of protein in a dish in a, one serving of beans and rice. Right. Yeah. And so let's it's, just talk about. Crazy. Let's, let's talk about people's needs. So it, it obviously varies based on gender and age. So do exactly. you have some of those stats for us? So for women, it's it varies between 46 and 75 grams of protein per day, and then in men, 56 to 91. Um, there's, a, there's an equation. You can find it online. I can speak briefly about it, and I have it uh, in a newsletter on my website. There's, a, there's a, an equation you can use uh, for your own body weight to determine how much protein you actually need. So if you, if you weigh, say, uh, 112 pounds and you divide that by 2.2, you get almost 51 kg. So for every kilogram that you weigh, you want to have about 0.8 grams of protein. And when you multiply uh, the kilogram weight by that protein, you get, say, 14.72. And a 112-pound person needs about 41 grams of protein per day. It's, and that, like, if you do, it's a little bit of a complicated equation, but once you get to the end of it, you realize you only need this particular equation, 8%. Mm-hmm. 8%. It's, it's crazy. And a lot of people think, oh, but you don't have all the amino acids in those particular plant protein sources, but if you're eating a, a variety of plant foods, your body is is very smart and intuitive, and it, it will pair the missing amino acids with your next meal. You have up to maybe 72 hours to get that full spectrum of amino acids, and amino acids, of course, are the, the breakdown of what protein is. Okay, so now let's talk about calcium. So calcium, uh, best sources of calcium found in the plant-based diet are leafy greens, nuts, seeds, beans, a lot of people are misguided when it comes to calcium absorption, especially when it comes to dairy, because the calcium-magnesium ratio in dairy is actually not optimal for human consumption, so it's, it's optimal for, you know, a baby cow. When the calcium-magnesium ratio is not optimal for the person ingesting, you don't actually absorb as much of the nutrients as you think you do. Interesting. Yeah. So, okay, now B12, that's something that people often say that you can only get from animal products. So can you give us the detailed explanation on how it is that people think they are getting it from animal products? Well, B12 is not found in plant foods. It used to be found in the soil, but we can't rely on that, unfortunately, because our soil is so depleted. Um, I advise people to take a supplement. It's about, I would recommend maybe a couple thousand a week for those not consuming animal products. But the funny thing is that animal products do contain B12, but they get that B12 from plants. So animals are eating a plethora of, of plants, all of their, our farming animals. They, they are pretty much all herbivores. They synthesize B12 from plants. So really taking out the middleman, taking out the animal, why don't we just eat plants? Mm-hmm. Right? Right. And you said you recommend taking a couple thousand uh, a week, and you meant micrograms, right? Not, yeah. Not Did pills. I say milligrams? Yes, <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't specify no, at all. I didn't want people thinking that vegans take a couple thousand pills. A no. Week. <laughs> and of course, there are, there are fortified foods. There are, you know, there's nutritional yeast, there are plant milks, uh, a lot of the, the seitan products, etc. All of those are fortified with, with B12, which are great. But 
it's kind of individualized how each person absorbs B12, and it's always recommended to get your blood levels tested because the deficiency in B12 is serious. But, you know, I think almost 40% of even omnivores have less than optimal levels of B12. And you know why? Because you need folic acid or folate to absorb B12. Okay. And I'm guessing those, you know, chowing down on the SAD diet, the standard American diet, they ain't eating their, their leafy greens. Right. So they're not even absorbing that B12 from their animal products anyways because their lack of plant products. And where can people get folate from? Oh, leafy greens. Okay, good to All know. All the leafy greens. Mm-hmm. So that makes me think about um, my next question, which is uh, how much it costs to actually get your, if, if you think that you're getting your B12 from animal products, the difference in price between purchasing a container of B12 pills versus buying all that meat and eggs. I mean, what do you pay for a container of B12 pills and how long does that last you? Oh, it's not expensive at all. I, ha- I get these tiny little sublingual, which are the best ones to get because they actually dissolve on your tongue and it's your stomach acid doesn't uh, affect the the supplement and you can get a pill of like 180 for oh it's it's like i'm guessing it's about like maybe 15 bucks not expensive at all great and what do you say to people who say that it's unnatural to take supplements because i do hear this from people and they think it's better to take in whole foods even if it includes the flesh or secretions of an animal which i find disgusting what do you say to that well, I guess it depends on on their version of unnatural. People eating animal products in the way that they're raised and 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 you know split up and pack, but that's not natural. It's not natural to have somebody else kill your animal for you. I mean, that's a bunch of BS. Am I allowed to swear on the radio? <laughs> BS isn't quite a swear. You got away with that one. <laughs> natural. I mean. Don't even get me started on natural. Yeah, I agree. Natural with you. is a, is an unregulated term, and popping a supplement um, to just to ensure health is is a smart thing. And I would all, I would bet my left leg that I would that the the people like on these standard American diets are on way more medications and supplements than someone who follows a whole food plant-based diet. Well, you're right there. Absolutely. Now let's talk about the fifth concern, which is iron. Okay. Iron, well, there is absolutely or next to no correlation between low iron and plant-based diets. My medical doctor even confirmed this for me when I wanted to get my iron tested just as a precaution. I like to see where my levels are because I'm, I'm pretty health conscious. And she was like, are you tired? I was like, no, but I, I, I follow a plant-based diet. I'm a vegan. And she was like, well, and this was right when I started, before I even started in school learning about this stuff. She's like, there's really no correlation between being on a vegetarian or vegan diet and low iron. Women naturally are lower in iron because we bleed every month, right? Right. And then men, they recycle their iron. But any any issues with low iron is usually due to malabsorption. So the body isn't absorbing iron properly, not because of the source of their iron. So some great sources of iron in the plant-based diet, dried fruit, blackstrap molasses, leafy greens, beans, legumes. If one is low in iron and ingesting plenty of these iron-rich foods um, and they still have low, low iron, then it's 
you know, they need to look at the reasons why they're not absorbing it. So low stomach acid, genetic predisposition, inflammation, excessive alcohol consumption. I could go on and on. But it's not because of where they're getting their iron. It's because their body isn't absorbing it properly. That's good to know. Allison has a quick question for you. Okay. Quick question. Don't know if it'll be a quick answer. This is for my friend. He wants to know... Uh, he's considering cutting out dairy milk from his diet, and his nutritional question is, what benefits will I see if I drink plant milks instead of animal milks? Like, what are the differences? What are the benefits? Well, in a lot of people, uh, dairy products, they, they cause inflammation. They cause a lot of skin disorders like eczema, acne, that type of thing. Um, they... Phlegm, it's congesting. They, it's a very phlegm-producing food, and of course, it's really meant for a baby cow, right? And so they're highly caloric as well. I'm not sure if he's he's concerned about calorie intake, but having foods that come from plants, I just find them a lot cleaner. And to be honest, two weeks after going from an omnivorous diet to a whole food plant-based diet, I felt like a cloud was lifted from my head. I just had this clarity. And I used to eat a lot of dairy. And that was within two weeks. A lot of people say that. And so I think that, that your friend may definitely feel less congested. If he has any skin issues, those could clear up as well. Constipation, that is very common because of, again, the calcium-magnesium ratio or IBS symptoms because our bodies don't really excrete a lot of the enzyme needed to digest uh, dairy products after we wean from our mother's breast because it's actually not natural, going back to that, to drink the milk that comes from another animal. So, hey, Jen, you can tell that person, whoever asked about being unnatural. It's like, do you want to go suck on that cow's breast? Yeah. Do you, do you think that's mm-hmm. natural? That's I what know. I said to my friend. And he said, calm down. <laughs> we, we I do get a little riled down. up. <laughs> well, Nikki, that makes me think of the people that say I'm lactose intolerant. And, and let's just bring that right back to what you said. Of course, people of are. course, we're not lactose intolerant. That that milk is not for us, and we exactly. are also beyond breastfeeding. I mean, some people age. have adapted. I mean, we are a, a trimi- we are we are an amazing species. So, I mean, some people's bodies do adapt to ingesting things that are bad for them, just like they do to smoking cigarettes or taking drugs. Uh, our bodies do adapt, but as biologically, it's we are lactose intolerant as soon as we wean from our mother's breast. Mm-hmm. Because we don't need milk after we wean from our mother's breast. Our mother's milk is the perfect food. Dairy milk is the perfect food for baby cats. Right. Yeah. Well, now let's move on to talk about why, well, we've talked about how it's possible to obtain all of our necessary nutrients from a plant-based diet. Let's talk about why it's less healthy to obtain them from, we've talked about dairy, but meat and fish and eggs. Well, meat, I mean, the hormones and the antibiotics, it's just... It's, it's, that's unnatural. There we go. Back to the unnatural again. And some insane number, I can't think of the statistic off the top of my head, but some insane number, some huge percentage of the world's antibiotics is used on livestock. 
to prevent disease. And then you're eating that livestock, and then you're becoming immune to these antibiotics. And, and I think that has a lot to do with the superbugs that are now resistant. It's known to, to be. Yes, it's proven. Yeah, it's yeah. just, it's, it's, we're in this, the world is in this gross, gluttonous, cyclical way of life. And I'm really happy people are becoming more aware of the benefits of being on a plant-based diet. Um, but, yeah, the, the hormones, the unnatural feed, I mean, they're eating stuff they're not supposed to eat, like corn and soy. And the unsanitary and inhumane conditions that these animals are kept in, the stress levels. I mean, these animals are in such stress. The levels of, I mean, their own adrenaline and cortisol, I mean, that's all being transferred to you if you ingest it. I just, there are more and more, people are really trying to link things like anxiety and depression to eating animals. I don't know what the, what the, finding, the uh, findings of them, those studies are, but, I mean, it makes you think. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're putting, the ener- energy is, energy doesn't go away. You know, when you're ingesting all this terrible energy, it's going somewhere. Right. And, and when I meet people that say they buy hormone-free, free-range animals that lived on grassy fields, I say that the animals have their own hormones. It's not just the ones that they're given by the yeah. industry. So by going hormone-free or even, let's talk about antibiotic-free, all that means is that if the animals get an infection, they're not getting treated. How would you feel if you didn't get treated for an exactly. infection? Um, and then fish. So the state of the oceans are absolutely filthy. Yeah. And there has been studies done on um Puget Sound wild salmon, and they found cocaine, birth control, uh, other pharmaceuticals in the flesh of the fish. And this is mm-hmm. wild salmon. What people think that's healthy, right? Well, they think it's healthy because it's not farmed. Mm-hmm. So farmed salmon, then they have their own issues uh, with with illness and just it's just <laughs> unnatural. But uh, the the state of the oceans, yeah, it's absolutely atrocious. It's full of garbage, pollution. Uh, stuff that's being flushed down the toilet, have birth control, and again, your people who eat eat fish, they are ingesting all of these things. And mercury, mercury is also a concern mm-hmm. in the in these fish as well. Yeah, and, and fish people, is seen as the healthiest meat to eat still for some reason. Well, people think it's because of the omega three fatty acids, but you can get omega three fatty acids from uh, the actual source. So algae. Al, you can get algal oil, which is a pure form of DHA, and that's act, or omega threes. It's where DHA in the omega threes. It's where the fish actually make it. So they eat the algae and turn it into the omega three. Just like you know, we were talking about B twelve and how animals eat plants and synthesize it into B twelves in their gut. That's what fish do with algae. They they synthesize it into the omega threes, and we can eat that on its own instead of eating the fish, you can't get that from the algae. And we can also have ground flax seeds for omega-3s, correct? Oh, yes. Flax seeds, uh, chia seeds, great plant sources of of omega-3. Well, I just want to talk about eggs for a minute. So I'm a huge fan and follower of the U.S.-based vegan medical doctor, Michael Greger, and he states that it is illegal to advertise eggs as a health food due to their high level of cholesterol. So one egg has 213 milligrams of cholesterol, and the average daily limit for people with normal cholesterol is 300 milligrams. So if you have an egg for breakfast, 
some coffee with cream in it, and maybe a skinless turkey breast for lunch, you would be over twice your limit by the end of the day. And that is for people who have normal cholesterol levels, which mm-hmm. is actually a little bit uncommon now. And the American Heart Association says that if you eat an egg for breakfast, you're basically limited to vegetables for the rest of the day to stay within your levels. Yes, that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. So I think Absolutely. we've given... Um, a good rebuttal to all of the common arguments against veganism. And now let's talk about some of the more ridiculous ones we hear, which is our ancestors ate meat and we wouldn't have developed into homo sapiens if our ancestors had not. What do you say to that? (laughs) Well, often we vegans hear that. Non-vegans argue that our ancestors eat meat or we would not have developed into these intelligent homo sapiens uh, had our ancestors not eaten meat, just like you said. And I think... Our ancestors probably ate whatever they could to survive. So maybe in the winter when they were, there weren't any crops, they would have starved without meat. Yes, but that doesn't mean they wouldn't have survived if they didn't have access to meat and lived on plant food, right? And that's just common sense. And nowadays, it's 2017. I mean, we're intelligent beings with the choice to eat what we please. We have so much food available to us. We have the luxury of this choice, and I believe because of that, it's our responsibility to make the ethical choices if we want this planet to survive, you know, for us, for our children, and, you know, for the animals. Right. Absolutely. And and how about the canine teeth argument? Let's talk about that one. Well, we don't, we have, okay, all mammals have canines, right? Pretty much all of them have canines, but that doesn't mean their purpose is for tearing flesh. I mean, have you seen the canines on a gorilla? They're, they're plant-based animals, except they may get a few bugs here and there with their mm-hmm. foraging. Uh, they're frightening-looking teeth, but that animal does not tear flesh off another being. Our teeth are identical to those of actually a frugivore, which is a fruit eater, and then secondly, uh, most similar to a herbivore. So we're not built like carnivores. Our teeth don't look like carnivores and even if they did doesn't necessarily mean that's what they're for again Mm -hmm. things like the gorilla or the hippo they all have these big fangs but they eat salad so and how about the length of our intestines and and the effect of animal products going through them so our intestines are similar to those of plant eaters yes longer intestines like the ones we have lead to more putrefaction of foods that are harder to digest so a short a short intestine food can move through quickly but if it's longer the longer the transit time the higher the risk of again putrefaction and inflammation and that type of thing so this particularly pertains to diets high in red meat and low in fiber because that type of dietary habit is linked to things like colon cancer because of the inflammation of the digestive tract, and it leaves it very vulnerable to disease. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for all your information. I could talk to you for hours, but we do have to wrap up. So why don't you tell us where our listeners can find out more about you and the services you offer before we say goodbye? Sure. I'm at www.veganomical.com. I'm on facebook.com slash veganomical, Instagram veganomical, and I am a a nutritionist with a plant-based certification from Cornell University and a sports nutrition certification as well. And I, I deal with clients with digestive issues, hormonal issues, inflammation, fatigue, blood sugar balance. And I do meal planning. I do meal plan swaps with people who just want better suggestions on what to eat. 
And I'm always open for discussion if people just need a little bit more information about how to go plant-based and especially how to go plant-based in a healthy way because I'm all about feeling great. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us today, Nikki. Thanks, Jen. Okay, take care. You too. Bye. You are listening to Animal Voices on Vancouver's Co-op Radio, 100.5 FM CFRO, 100% listener-sponsored radio broadcasting live from the east side on unceded Coast Salish territories. On the phone today, we have Vancouver-based filmmaker Gary Charbonneau, creator of the 2016 documentary Vancouver Aquarium Uncovered. Welcome, Gary. Hi, thanks for having me. Very much our pleasure. So, September 1st marks the beginning of the annual dolphin hunt in Taiji, Japan. Can you inform our listeners about the connection between this brutal practice and aquariums around the world? Uh, yes, I can talk to you about that, and I can even uh, tie in how the Vancouver Aquarium is attached to the uh, brutal hunt in Taiji. What it is is every year fishermen in Japan will corral a bunch of dolphins into a cove and then slaughter them. And some of these uh, animals, uh, they try to choose some of the good ones, and then those good ones go to aquaria where they're taught how to do tricks, and then they're sold to aquaria like Vancouver Aquarium, whether it be you know a year or two years later, up to ten years later, and it's all done under the disguise of rescue and rehabilitation. And so what people don't realize, though, is that the hunt is, is obviously brutal and, and people are trying to stop it. Uh, but there's a lot of rhetoric about uh, fixed fishing nets that some dolphins come from. And that's what you hear the Vancouver Aquarium talk a lot about. But what people don't realize is that in Japan, for the most part, whether a dolphin comes from a, a fixed fishing net or the drive, that animal is never going to see the ocean again, more than probably not. Um, and Hannah is a great uh, example of that. So Hannah was purchased by the Vancouver Aquarium in 2005 along with Helen. And the public believes that there was somehow uh, a rescue or rehabilitation from the aquarium. But in fact, the aquarium simply bought two performing dolphins from Inoshima, Japan, which is an aquarium there. Uh, uh, Helen was there for nine years performing tricks. There was no rescue whatsoever. And Hannah was there for approximately two years. And, and she was doing tricks. She had no injuries. She was found in a fixed fishing net. But once again, with no injuries, she was found emaciated. Uh, she should have went back to the ocean when she was in Japan, but she didn't because she's worth a lot of money. So they trained her, and uh, Vancouver Aquarium came along. And Helen didn't have any stranding numbers, so Helen probably came from the drive. Hannah came from a fixed fishing net, and neither one of them will ever see the ocean again. So... The drive is, is horrible, and a lot of animals are, are brutally killed. But uh, make no mistake, you know, the fixed fishing nets, if we're taking any dolphins from Japan, we're supporting the dolphin industry in its entirety. Mm-hmm. Uh, dolphins obtained from the hunt in Taiji are also sold around the world for the very popular swim with dolphins experiences. And you've been quite vocal about the irresponsibility of allowing the general public to interact physically with captive animals. Can you tell us why? Well, it's, it's very careless of the Vancouver Aquarium to allow anyone 
to touch these animals, uh, and they, they call them their encounter programs, and, and it's, it's a money grab. So what you do is anybody who visits the aquarium, you pay for your ticket, and then you actually have to pay extra to go touch these animals. And uh, there's a disease called zoonosis or zoonosis, depending on which part of the country or which country you're from, I should say. And that's the, the disease the transmission between people and animals and animals and people. And you can't have people touching these animals. They're not accustomed to our types of diseases and, and vice versa. And so here they're allowing children who can get sick from touching these animals, but some of these children and some of these parents are sick themselves who can make these animals sick who don't have the defense mechanism to protect themselves. And so then we have Keela and Aurora. You know, Keela was sick for, for quite some time and they knew this. They didn't know what it was, yet they allowed the encounter program to continue not even considering that this may be very dangerous to the public. And then Aurora became sick, and encounter programs were still happening at the Vancouver Aquarium. Now both these animals have passed away, sadly. They don't know why, and they're still doing their encounter programs with Chester and Helen, I believe. And the public should know that under no circumstances should they be touching these animals. It's actually really dangerous. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about some current events now. The Vancouver Aquarium has been making headlines over the past couple of years in regards to their legal battles with you as a filmmaker and whistleblower and now against the park board. For our listeners who may not know, could you give us a brief summary of these legal issues? What's been going on there? Well, let me go back a few years for your listeners so they have a really good understanding of uh, why captivity is still happening at the Vancouver Aquarium. I went back decades talking to different park board commissioners, and almost every single one of them wanted to end captivity. And they were always afraid to because Mr. Nightingale, the CEO of the Vancouver Aquarium, always threatened with lawsuits. That was consistent with every single one of my interviews is that they were always concerned about the lawsuit and they didn't want to trigger a lawsuit onto the city. And so they always voted in favor of the aquarium, even though they were actually against it. And it was a litigious bullying of Mr. Nightingale that keeps captivity going. And we're seeing it right now. In 2014, that park board commission wanted to captivity and they wanted to bring in an independent oversight committee. What some people don't understand about CASA, which is the Canadian Association for uh, Zoos and Aquariums in Canada, who oversee the zoos and aquaria, they are the zoo and aquaria. They're not independent at all. As a matter of fact, the president of CASA, which is supposed to be overlooking these animals to ensure that you know all the standards are met and the aquariums and the zoos are treating them properly and ethically, well, the president of CASA is the vice president of the Vancouver Aquarium, Clint Wright. So it's all incestuous. There's no protection for these animals. And so you have uh, quite a few different layers that are happening here, and then you add the lawsuits. So 2014, once again, Park Board wanted to bring forward an end to captivity, and they also wanted to bring in an independent oversight because there's different animals there besides whales and dolphins. And, uh, and uh, Mr. Nightingale uh, and the Vancouver Aquarium brought forward a lawsuit, and so the Park Board backed off. And this is what they have done for, as I said, decades. But in 2017, this Park Board Commission said, no, we're not going to be bullied anymore by the aquarium. We've looked at all the facts. We've looked at all the science. We've listened to the public, and captivity is over. And so they made their decision, uh, and the Vancouver Aquarium once again turned around and said, well, we're going to sue you. 
because we don't accept it. And where it could be somewhat problematic for the aquarium is that during the public hearing this year, uh, one of the commissioners asked Mr. Nightingale point blank, if we brought forward a bylaw, would you respect it? And he said, yes, that's part of the contract. So he's already given them permission to do this, and I don't know how that's going to play out in court, but he said yes, he has to follow it, and apparently I think he's just trying another tactic of bullying to scare them so he can keep captivity. And then there's a lawsuit with me trying to keep the film from being shown, trying to hide the truth, and then there was an injunction brought forward. So uh, the general feeling I'm getting from the public in Vancouver is that you know, we're supposed to have this you know, ethical, moral... A science center in our community that's involved in one lawsuit after another and a lot of deception and controversy and uh, I think people are getting tired of it. Yeah, much of the public's response to your documentary, Vancouver Aquarium Uncovered, has been of, of shock and disappointment in learning about the deceptive side of the Vancouver Aquarium and we continue to learn more about their unethical business practices in news articles by scientists such as Dr. Jeff Matthews, who often writes about their history of exploitation and abuse. Most recently, an article was published which exposed the truth behind the acquisition of Chester, the false killer whale. Can you elaborate on that a bit? How did Chester come to become captive at the Vancouver Aquarium? Well, and this, and this is the problem that we have uh, with transparency at the aquarium. And there's so much uh, suspicion uh, surrounding the decisions that they make. And the issue that came up with Chester is that through an FOI of Freedom of Information, um, there was emails uh, back and forth between the DFO and the Vancouver Aquarium. And there was clearly mistakes made. And uh, there were decisions being made at a time when they couldn't be made. And so there was a lot of confusion and questions about how the DFO is connected, perhaps too closely with the aquarium. I believe one of the DFO officers that was working uh, with the aquarium with Chester actually worked at the aquarium before. And if I'm not mistaken, it was that same gentleman that said at the Senate hearings this year, uh, there were Senate hearings in Ottawa uh, because of Bill S-203 where they want to end captivity at a federal level uh, across Canada. And so the DFO was invited to speak. And I, unless I'm mistaken, because there was, there was a lot of information and it was a few months back, if I'm not mistaken, the DFO admitted that they had only given the Vancouver Aquarium one permit in all these years to uh, bring a cetacean into their aquarium, and that was for Chester. But the aquarium has been saying that they have to get permission and permits from the DFO, and now they've just said that there's only one. So what about the others? Who made that decision? So as you can see, people are very confused and uh, have a lot of questions about the, the integration and, and how the DFO and the aquarium are connected and why the aquarium has so much power in making a decision when they themselves are biased because they make money by selling tickets to see animals that are in captivity. And of course they say it's for conservation, but there hasn't been any conservation in 50 years. So, um, you know, it's, it's an aquatic circus. And so they have a bias and people are, are also worried about that as well. So what about what happened with Chester then? Do we know if the aquarium ever genuinely plans to rehabilitate him and release him back into the wild? That's a very hard question to answer, simply because Chester was very young. Uh, I don't have a whole lot of information, so I, I can't comment too much on Chester. What I can't comment on is what I know. And what I do know is going back to an animal like Hannah, 
who was not rehabilitated by the Vancouver Aquarium under their own rehabilitation dolphin program. So if they're not going to rehabilitate Hannah, who is the perfect candidate for release, I mean, it really calls into question whether or not if they would have any interest in rehabilitating Chester. Now, you have to remember, Chester is very rare. There's only a handful of false killer whales in the world, I believe. And when they found Chester, they admitted a couple things. Number one, that other aquaria had shown an interest in giving Chester a permanent home. And we don't know who they are. And it's important that we know who they are because the Vancouver Aquarium in 2014, when they found Chester in Tofino, they also admitted that Chester would be too big for the Vancouver Aquarium. So now the big question is, is that if you know that you're going to have to move this animal at some point, where are you going to move him to? And is that one of the aquaria that showed interest that he should have went to right away? Because you can't, it's hard to move an animal after he's gotten comfortable or she has gotten comfortable in their home, however small that home may be, and they get comfortable with the people around them and the other animals around them, like in this case would be Helen. And now they're going to probably move Chester. And why did they keep him here for the time that they did? Was he rehabilitatable, first of all? Why wasn't he sent over to another aquaria that may have been better suited for him right away? So what we have to understand about Chester is that he is a rare commodity. So here we have the aquarium that's in a position to bring in this false killer whale, keep him for as long as they possibly can so they can make money because he's a draw. And when he gets too big, as they have admitted, then they'll ship him away somewhere else. And that is very stressful to the animal. And the best thing for Chester should have been that he went to another place right away. Now, keeping in mind that years ago, the Vancouver Aquarium should have embarked on discussions about sea pens. Had they have done that and and they should be doing it right now, animals like Chester and the porpoises that were found, like Daisy and Jack, I believe, they could be going to sea pens, which are probably 50 times greater in size than the Vancouver Aquarium. They're in the ocean, and they can either be rehabilitated there or retire there, which would be a much better home for them. But the Vancouver Aquarium doesn't even want to talk about sea pens because they make money selling tickets. So... Poor Chester may just be there because of uh, profit motives. We don't know. The position of the general public who oppose the capture and display of animals by the Vancouver Aquarium is that no animal should be stolen from a, a wild, free, and natural life where they can engage in natural behaviors. There's a common misconception that those who oppose captivity must also oppose rescue and rehabilitation, but this couldn't be farther from the truth, right? Could you explain your stance on the work of the Marine Mammal Rescue Center compared to the separate tourist facility, the Vancouver Aquarium itself? Yes, there, and you're right. There is a big difference between uh, you know, taking an animal from the ocean and actually saving an animal from the ocean. When you look at orcas, belugas, and dolphins that have all resided at the Vancouver Aquarium, not a single one in 50 years, orcas, belugas, and dolphins, not a single one has ever been rescued by the aquarium. They've all been taken from the ocean or born in captivity and then died a short life. So the, the real question is, is, what do you do with animals that are actually stranded or that require assistance and can't go back into the wild? Well, everybody that I've talked to said, we want to help these animals. And so, but what's the best way of helping them? Well, putting them in a small concrete tank at whether it's SeaWorld or Vancouver Aquarium or somewhere else is not the best place for them to either be rehabilitated or to retire. We know that. 
the facts show that they don't survive and they do not do well in captivity. And that's why the Vancouver Aquarium needs to embark on talks with places like the Whale Sanctuary in Quebec that are bringing sea sanctuaries for animals and that they can live out, like I said, the rest of their lives or at least be rehabilitated in the ocean. And, and, and surrounding that, you know, you have the Vancouver Aquarium that says that there won't be people there once in a while. It, it's just it's ludicrous the things that they say. This will be a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week operation. Animals will be fed, they'll be looked after, there'll be vet care, there'll be training, there'll be all sorts of things. It'll actually bring in tourism, depending on where the sea pen is located. Uh, they'll bring jobs, and animals will have a better place to live. So the question is, is what do we do with the animals that are truly rescued? Then the answer is sea pens, and until sea pens are ready, find the best facility for temporarily until we can move them into sea pens. And what about the Marine Mammal Rescue Centre? What can you tell us about that? Because that is part of the Vancouver Aquarium, though a separate facility. The Vancouver Marine Mammal Rescue Centre, and I'm just going to say this quite bluntly, is a, is a true embarrassment for Vancouver. The Vancouver Aquarium brags about saving or rescuing 170 marine mammals. Vancouver Aquarium is a $40 million a year operation right now. They have captivity because they say that's supposed to help the Marine Mammal Rescue Center, which is why you know, Mr. Nightingale has threatened to close the rescue center if he can't have captivity anymore because he said they're so closely related. Yet, there's other rescue centers on our coast. Uh, you talk about Sausalito or in Los Angeles. Here, they have no captivity. They do not sell tickets, and they're rescuing 500 to 1,000 animals per year. No captivity, no tickets, and we're only rescuing 170. It is not a priority to the Vancouver Aquarium. They just make it sound like it's a priority. They should be rescuing close to nowhere less than 500 animals per year. But they're intentionally keeping it small. They were working out of a garden shed for six years. That's where they were doing their operations on animals, out of a standard garden shed that you would find at Canadian Tire or Rhone. And yet they had acquired $100 million for expansion purposes and they're doing operations out of a garden shed. So it really goes to show you that when you compare the Marine Mammal Rescue Center here, and you actually look at it, you know, uh, blue bins and a bunch of white tarps, and then when you look at the other facilities that are professional and they're top-rated facilities, uh, they have heat lamps over their beds, they have enclosures that actually lock, they have various dry pools, various medical facilities, college programs, we have nothing of the sort, and we're a $40 million operation. We should be leading the charge with marine mammal care, and yet we're at the bottom of the barrel. Um, yeah, the Vancouver Aquarium really needs to start spending more money and making it a priority and start rescuing a proper number of animals. Honestly, back in high school, I used to volunteer at both the Vancouver Aquarium and the Marine Mammal Rescue Center, and looking back... The rescue center felt smaller and more rudimentary than the aquarium's gift shop at the tourist facility in Stanley Park, so I can definitely attest to that. Pretty indicative of where they've been laying their priorities. So what can listeners do to help support this cause? Uh, what can listeners do to help support dolphins who are suffering in the Taiji drive hunts and suffering around the world in captivity? Well, I think the best way to support it is to stop your support for the aquarium. Uh, I'm not saying give up on the aquarium. I'm a true believer that we need a science center here, and our aquarium could be uh, revitalized to a point that it should be the, the best aquarium in the world. 
but it's being held back by old uh, archaic beliefs such as captivity and things like that. And we need to change management. We need to change direction. We certainly need more transparency. We need a lot more money uh, going towards conservation research and education because I believe it's only at 16% right now. And, and, and that's like walking into a cancer research foundation and finding out that they're only allocating about 5% to research. I mean, that would be completely unacceptable, but yet that's what's happening at the Vancouver Aquarium. 16% of conservation research and education, that's just that's basically 5% each. It's way too low. And the Marine Mammal Rescue Center, as we just talked about, that actually gets 1.3%. And so when people ask me, what, what would I do? I would simply let the aquarium know that uh, I want to cancel my membership or I won't be donating. I'm going to stop supporting the aquarium until we get some new management and new direction and uh, more transparency. And where can people watch your documentary? VancouverAquariumUncovered.com Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Gary, for, for joining us on the show today. Thank you very much for having me, and keep doing a great job that you guys always do. All right. So that was Gary Charbonneau, creator of the documentary Vancouver Aquarium Uncovered. And once again, you can see that documentary for yourself for free at VancouverAquariumUncovered.com. And we have a very important call to action for the public. Please go to the government petition on our Facebook page, Animal Voices Vancouver, and sign and share it to put an end to captivity of whales and dolphins across Canada. This is going to have its third reading in the Senate in October, so we really need to get this out to the public. Please share that with all of your friends. Yeah, so I posted that on our Facebook, just so our listeners know you actually have to request a PDF because they don't do, and they won't accept like an online petition petition mm-hmm. so you can do that by looking at the um i wasn't able to upload it but you can you can uh, look at the email on our facebook and request one of those pdfs and go out and get signatures because the government needs paper signatures they're old school mm-hmm. and you can also contact no whales in captivity via facebook or just online to get more information on that and you've been listening to the animal voices show on cfro co-op radio 100.5 fm in vancouver canada we hear at animal voices radio want to hear from you find us on facebook at animal voices vancouver on our website at animalvoices.org where you can listen to past shows twitter at animal voices yvr and email at radio animal voices at gmail.com stay tuned for radio eco shock next and remember to be kind to the animals and tune into our show at noon on friday next week allison can you tell us about that yeah so september 8th we're going to be doing a feature interview with an activist and author named tobias lenart he's based in belgium he's written a book called how to Create a Vegan World, a Pragmatic Approach. And we'll also be having a group discussion speaking about just discussing reducitarian versus abolitionist approaches to reducing animal suffering in the world. So please do tune in for that. And right now we're leaving you with a song. It's called Feel It Still by Portugal the Man. 